this morning. Um, turn our eyes and our hearts um, to the one who's above all things. So let's just pray together. Lord God, you're above all things. You are greater than all things. We're here to worship the one who's above all sins, all suffering and grief and all the troubles of this world. So we look to you, Lord God, because you alone are holy and you alone are our heart's desire. And we declare we are here for you. Will you stand with us as we sing?
Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Peter, and you may have a seat. I'm one of the community pastors here at Fellowship Bentonville. And I'm Sarah Overman, and I work with the Early Childhood Ministry Team. And uh, it's a privilege to worship with you all today. I love Psalm 95.1, which says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. What a privilege it is to gather corporately to do that together. Uh, this morning, we have the privilege of gathering together as a body and celebrating some child dedications. So I want to invite uh, the parents and their children to come up on stage here and join us. This morning isn't just for these kids. It isn't just for the parents. This is for all of us. So many of you will pour your lives out into these young ones over the next number of years through community groups and supporting parents, through cell groups, through helping out in childcare. And what a privilege it is that we get to uh, witness and encourage these parents as they have this huge responsibility, but just a privilege to raise these kids. Yeah. So welcome, guys. What a beautiful bunch of kids we have assembled <laughs> here. Yeah, and in the early childhood ministry, it is such a delight to get to be some of the first people to come alongside these parents um, and welcome them into the church and teach them about who Jesus is. And we love Sundays. They're the highlight of our week. And it's really fun to get to be in on the groundwork of seeing even these little ones come to understand God's love for them. If you've been around fellowship for a while, you know that we do not do childcare and we don't babysit, we disciple. And that discipleship process starts <laughs> in the homes and um, it's a privilege to get to just come alongside and support in the church um, as, early as, as early as they come into our ministry and up through high school. Um, so we are just overjoyed to get to be up here this morning with these families and just join their heartbeat of um, leading these little ones to know the Lord. Awesome. Child dedication is a step in the discipleship process. We believe baptism should happen, but when a believer makes a personal profession of faith, for these little ones, we want to have a stake in the ground for you parents, um, a moment that we as a body of believers commit to walking alongside them and teaching them to follow Jesus, just like, just like um, Samuel was dedicated by Sarah in the temple and uh, Jesus was consecrated also in the temple. Parents, um, I've seen pictures being taken, and it's encouraging. May this be a monument for you guys. Um, and may this be a memory um, for you as conversations happen. And you can say to one another, this is the time that we as a church committed to discipling these young children, to raise them up to be fruitful followers of Jesus. So Fellowship family, we would love to introduce these families to you that are dedicating their children to the Lord. And starting down by Peter, we have Michael and Elena with their daughter Lillian and their and big brother Henry. Charmiel and Bailey <laughs> with their daughter, Michela. John and Olivia with baby Joey, big sister Hannah Kate, and brother Hank. Justin and Becca with Ruby and Judah and brother Gideon. And Tyler and April with Olivia and Maverick. Awesome. <laughs> Parents, you probably can agree with me that raising children is one of the, probably the hardest things you can do in your life, and it uh, really <laughs> makes you realize, Lord, you're in charge, and I'm not, and I need you to raise these children. Um, but it's also the most rewarding and fulfilling uh, responsibility God has given you. It's, it's amazing that the Lord entrusts these children to you, and he equips you with the, his power in you to raise them. Um, you get to set the pace in their lives, you get to map out priorities. And one of the most important things that I see is that as parents, you individually and as a couple, the pursuit of the Lord, the abiding in Jesus is the most important thing that you guys can do because that'll be a compelling thing for your children as they see you following Jesus. They will be drawn to do the same. It's kind of like when you get on that airplane and they say, when the oxygen masks come down, put the mask on yourself first so that you'll be fed by the oxygen, then give it to your child. 
as you guys abide in the Lord, as you are nourished by him, you'll be able to impart those things that the Lord wants to impart to your children. And uh, it's, it's awesome. So parents, I want to ask you this. Do you commit to loving your kids with Christ-like love, leading them through with humility, apologizing to them when you mess up, teaching them God's word, encouraging biblical community, and shepherding them as a gift from the Lord? If you will, say yes, we will. Great. At this time, we want to invite friends and family, community groups, up to surround these families. We don't know where God's going to take these kids over the coming years, whether cell groups or mission trips, neighbors they might be, or who knows, even spouses. But we want you to know this, that while they're here, they get all, all of us, our time, our prayer, our investment, our community. It takes this to raise your children. And parents, if you can hear me, just take a look around and see these family members and friends that are supporting you. Look out. We're for you in this process of raising your kids. It's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> I want you parents to join me. I'm going to invite you guys to pray with me over your children. So let's do that together. And then after that prayer, body of believers, we're going to pray corporately over the parents for this this task that they have, this joy, this responsibility they have in raising these kids. So parents, let's pray this prayer. Father, you love these children more than we ever could. Teach us to love them like you do as we learn to receive your grace and forgiveness. Help us extend the same grace and forgiveness to them. You want greater things for them than we could ever imagine. And you have the power to sustain them and strengthen them for the journey ahead. We commit them to you. And body, let's pray this over the parents together. Join me. Father, empower these parents to rest in your infinite love. Give them wisdom as they lead, discernment as they steward, and compassion as they walk alongside these children. Help them not to lean on their own understanding but to trust you and entrust to you time and again these precious lives you've given them. Through every season, joy and sorrow, you hem them in on every side. We commit them to you. Body, let's encourage these parents as they head back to their seats with just a, yeah, joyful one. All right. Good. You guys are good. You guys can head back. Yes. As they head back to their seats, it'd be a missed opportunity if I didn't invite you to join the discipleship process in a more involved, consistent way through what we call Serve One, Worship One. Jesus regularly invites the little children to come to him. He loves kids. So for us to love kids is a reflection of of loving Christ in his heart. And as Sarah said, the discipleship process begins when these ones are little. So there are opportunities for you to serve in the children's ministry. Um, and you can do that by signing up on our website under the serve, serve tab. But if children aren't your thing, there are plenty of other ways to serve on serve one, worship one. So serve one service and worship another. So we invite you to do that. Let's continue with our time of worship. I invite you to stand and join us. Will you pray with me? Lord, tune our eyes to see you rightly. Help us to know that you are our God and that you are faithful, that you keep your covenant love to a thousand generations. Lord, help us to see you as you are this morning. Will you sing this with me? Promise maker.
to mind specific ways that God has been good to us. Call it up in your mind right now. How has he been great to you? And sing it back to him. Let's sing it out. right there declaring your greatness and your goodness thank you for being so kind so loving so gracious merciful Lord we praise you for your power your holiness all that you are all that you do we exalt you Lord you are worthy Thank you for meeting us here as we've gathered. Lord, you are always present. Help us to be present with you right now. As we look into your word, I pray that we'll meet you there and we'll hear your voice speaking to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you, worship team, for leading us into the presence of the Lord. So how we doing? We good? All right. So be making your way to First uh, Samuel, chapter twenty-four. That's where we're going to be landing in our text. Well, tonight happens to be the television event of the year. Go team! Just so you know, there's some of us that uh, football season ended a few weeks ago. <clears throat> More people watch the Super Bowl than any other single broadcast in the U.S. So if you watch it tonight, what can you expect to see? Let me get to tell you some things you can expect to see. You can expect to see a lot of celebrities who may or may not care anything about football or the teams that are playing. But they love a good party, they have money for the ticket, and they like to be seen. You can expect to see a lot of camera cutaways to Taylor Swift. You can expect to see a lot um, of really good football players do some really impressive things. And when they do, you can expect to see them celebrate with a lot of chest thumping, trash talking, high-fiving, Dancing and just general exuberance. But do you know what you won't see much of tonight? Humility. You see, we just don't really celebrate humility in our culture. We live in a me-first society that is all about self-promotion. So in light of that, I need to share just a real quick personal story. In between services, um, I checked my phone. And we have a family text like many of you have. And my wife texted all the kids saying, hey, dad's teaching at fellowship. He's kind of a big deal. And this is, this is, where, this is why God gives us children. One of my children, I didn't check to see which one, it said, yeah, the line's too long for traffic. I'm not going. <laughs> not that big a deal after all, am I? Anyway, humility. We live in a me-first society that is all about self-promotion. And when we talk about humility, I'm talking about how we view and think about ourselves. So let me give you a definition of humility. Humility is having a modest view of our importance. And today we're going to look at a story in David's life that displays his humble character. In Romans chapter 12, 
Paul writes to us in, in the, one of those verses there in Romans 12, the very beginning of the verse, he says, don't be high-minded, but be sober-minded or right-minded. And one, in order for us to truly have humility, we need to learn to think properly about ourselves. We need to have a modest view of one's own importance. But let me set the stage for our story today. 1 Samuel chapter 24 says, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to see David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Now, if you were here last week and you haven't read in between, you may be sitting there going, wait a minute. Last week, David was a hero, and now Saul is hunting for him. What in the world happened in those four short chapters? Well, let me explain. Or as they say in Princess Bride, not enough time, let me sum up. Okay. The events of chapters 18 through 23 cover about four years. So I'm going to sum up those four years for you really quickly. But it's really helpful to know that the writer of 1 Samuel, one of the things that he wanted to do as he was putting these stories together is he constantly is contrasting for us Saul, the king the people chose, and David, the king that God chose. And you're going to see a lot of contrast between Saul and David, between their behaviors and their characters, between their relationship with God. You're going to see that contrast, and that's what we see kind of unfolding in chapters 18 through 23. And particularly in chapters 18 and 19, you can summarize this contrast as the growing popularity of David and the growing paranoia of Saul. So last week, Hunter took us through uh, the familiar story of David defeating Goliath. And that was the beginning of David's incredibly successful military career. And so we see in chapter 18 some passages where it talks about that David was successful wherever Saul sent him. And David had success in all his undertaking. And David had more success. And then the response to that was, this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And all of Israel loved, and Judah loved David, and his name was highly esteemed. So we see this, this growing popularity of David among the people. He's really, really successful in his military campaigns, better than all the generals that Saul had up to this point. And the, the primary enemy was the Philistines, and he was defeating them every time he went out. And they would come back, and we're told in, in uh, chapter 18 that he would come back from, from defeating the Philistines, and they would have a parade. And they would be singing his praises, and everybody loved David, except Saul. He took a different view of David. As Mark Schatzman taught us a few weeks ago, Saul had become a narcissistic and insecure leader. And when narcissistic and insecure leaders feel threatened, they react. And we see how Saul reacted. He was very angry. And he eyed David from that day on. And he was afraid of David. So that in verse 29, so Saul was David's enemy continually. So think about this. David had been nothing but a faithful servant. Whatever was asked of him, that's what he did. Hey, would you play your, your liar for Saul whenever he's troubled? Sure. And he would play music. David, would you, would you lead the military campaigns? Sure. And he did. Never once did he try to undermine Saul. Never once did he try to, to oppose Saul. All he ever did was be Saul's faithful servant. Yet, all Saul could hear was they love him more than they love me. And he couldn't stand it. And he became David's enemy. 
his paranoia increased and his jealousy increased so much that he started trying to kill David on multiple occasions. Threw a spear at him a couple of times, trying to pin him to the wall. And then we read where he told uh, his son and all of his servants, if you get a chance to kill David, kill him. And then he sent messengers to David's house saying, I want you to kill David when he comes out in the morning. And, and uh, David's wife, who happened to be Saul's daughter, said, no, David's sick. And so Saul said, well, just bring him up here in the bed and I'll kill him myself. All he could think about was eliminating his competition. And so as, the, the, as David became more and more popular and more and more successful, Saul became more and more jealous and more and more paranoid. And so finally, David had to go into hiding. And that's what brings us to our story today. Saul had begun a cycle of chasing David around the wilderness, coming home and then chasing him again. He would go out and hunt for him, couldn't find him. And then he would come home and then someone would say, hey, David's over here. And he would run off over there. And he would come home, oh, David's over here, and that's where we are in chapter 24. Someone said, hey, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul gathers 3,000 of his best soldiers. And he heads out to find him. Now, at this point, David had gathered a band of people around him, and they had numbered about 600 men. Now, Saul had him outnumbered five to one. He was serious. He intended to eliminate David from the equation. And he was going to hunt him down at all costs and kill him. But we're told that while they were searching through the countryside, Saul and his men stopped at what is the ancient Near East equivalent of a rest area. Some sheep folds in some caves. Um, Saul needs to take care of some business that can't be done just standing behind a rock, if you know what I mean. So he goes by, by himself into one of the caves. He takes off his robe and lays it down, and he goes back into the cave to take care of his business. It just so happens, if you believe in coincidence, which I don't, it just so happens that David and his men were hiding in that very cave. David's men were certain that this was a fulfillment of a promise, and we don't have it recorded anywhere, but they quote a promise from God that says that, that God was going to deliver his enemy into his hands. And if you look at the last part of that sentence, and you will do to him as it shall seem good to you. I'm going to put him in your hands, and you do whatever you think is right. So let me pause and ask you, what would you do? If that were you in that situation, what would you do? Let me again set the stage. Here's a man who's devoted to killing you. That's all he wants in, in his life is for you to be dead. He has run you out of your home. He's threatened your family. He's chased you around for about four years now. You have the support of the people. You have the support of the prophet. You even got the anointing of God on your life to be king. In fact, later on, if you read what Saul says in, in his response to David later in this story, he said, even Saul said, you would have been perfectly justified if you wanted to kill me. You have every reason to take the life of this man. He is in your hands. What would you do? You see, what you do in circumstances like that reveals your true character. And that's what we see about David. You see, rather than attack Saul, David took a robe, and it says he cut off the corner. It may mean that he actually cut the hem of the robe off, but whatever it was, he took, cut off a piece of Saul's robe. And the moment that he did that, it says that his heart convicted him. And look what he says about it. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. And when Saul left the cave, David went out behind him and called out to him and called him my Lord and my King, and he bowed down on the ground. 
Now, as I was reading this passage, very familiar story, but as I was studying this passage, I have to say, my heart pricked me and going, this is not what I would do. I don't know if I would have let him walk out of the cave alive, but I certainly would not have bowed down in humble obedience to him. He didn't deserve it. And there's the difference. Humility is about how we view ourselves, but it is often displayed in how we view and treat others. David knew that he'd been anointed to be king of Israel, but he also recognized that Saul had been anointed by God to be king of Israel as well. David recognized that. And David knew that if he did not recognize and respect Saul's anointing, then his anointing meant nothing as well. If he discounted the anointing of God on Saul, then he had to discount his, the anointing on himself. If he wasn't willing to respect the anointing and the calling and the position of Saul, how could he expect anybody to respect his anointing and his calling and his position? David's view of himself caused him to treat Saul with respect and dignity and humility. In Philippians chapter 2, we studied Philippians several months ago. In Philippians chapter 2, there's this encouragement to humility that says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, the only thing that mattered to Saul was his own power and position. And he would do anything, anything to hold on to it. To protect it. Including killing his best army general and one of his most loyal subjects. But to David, even the man who was trying to kill him had value and significance before God. As I said earlier, humility requires a proper, proper view of ourselves and a proper view of others. We see ourselves as valuable and significant to God because we are made in his image and he has chosen to love us and that's it. That's all we need to give us our value and significance. It's not based on our power or our position or what we can do or what we have. And the value and significance of other people is not based on any of that either. Nor is it based on how they relate to us, whether we like them or not, whether they treat us well or not. They have value and significance the same way we do. They are made in the image of God and, they are, and God has chosen to love them. And humility is what allows us to see people that we think don't deserve to be loved and respected and treated with dignity and do so. I look at Saul and I see a bad person. He's a terrible man and he deserved to die. David looked at Saul and said, here's a man that God has chosen to love and I will treat him with dignity and respect. So humility is what allows us to see others as possessing the same value and significance that we have and to treat them accordingly. And I will even flip that and go back to say, if they don't have value and significance simply because they are made in the image of God and God loves them, then where does our value and significance come from? What right do we have to demand to be treated with respect and dignity if we don't think other people have that same right? That's humility. So that's how David was able to say, even though you are sinning against me by hunting me, and let me just back up and, and, and pause and say, 
Humility doesn't mean that we ignore when people do things wrong to us. Humility doesn't mean that we pretend that whatever anybody wants to do is fine. Humility doesn't mean that we, that we just discount sin that is committed against us. That's not what humility means. And David says, even though you are sinning against me by hunting me, I will not sin against you. I will not be responsible for hurting you. Humility calls us to be better than our enemies, to behave better, to treat them better. So I ask you again, you're in the cave, Saul is in your hands, what would you do? You may say, though, how in the world can someone become that kind of person? And I agree with you. Like I said, I don't know if I would even let him walk out alive, but I certainly would not have treated him with dignity and respect. I would not have honored him in the least. That's my heart. So how in the world was David able to do this? The attitude and behavior that's being displayed by David is not natural to our humanity. It is not normal for us to respond that way, and, and we need to recognize that. In order for us to be able to respond in humility, we need something supernatural to happen inside of us, and that's what had happened inside of David. So how was he able to do this? The answer is found in David's final words that he spoke to, uh, spoke to Saul. May the Lord judge. May the Lord avenge. And then there in verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Somewhere along the way, David had learned to trust his reputation, his safety, his future, his very life into God's hands. So as I was wondering about how God did that in David, I ran across Psalm 57. Psalm 57 was written about four years before this, time, this, this story that we're looking at. When David first started running and hiding from Saul, you can read about that in, in the 1 Samuel 22. I find it interesting that Psalm 57 was written in a cave, the cave of Adullam. And here's how it reads. To the choir master, according to do not destroy a victim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. If you read the entire psalm, and, and there's a, a companion psalm, uh, I believe it's 142 that, uh, that goes with this. It was written at the same time. What you'll find is that David went into that cave truly crying out to the Lord saying, they're trying to kill me and I don't know what to do. They're setting traps for me. They're seeking my life. My enemies are surrounding me. I don't know what to do. And he completes this psalm by saying, I will trust in you to protect me. I will trust in you to defend me. I will trust in you to deliver me. I will trust in you to bring about your purpose in my life because I trust in your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God was using the cave of Adullam 
to prepare David for the test of the cave at Engedi. As he was pouring his heart out in the cave of Adullam, God was telling him and reassuring him, I'm going to take care of you. You can trust me. I've got you in my hands. You can trust me. I will bring about my purpose for you. My steadfast love and my faithfulness can be trusted. And David's heart began to see God at work. And over those next four years, David's trust in God began to grow and grow and grow until we find him in the cave of Engedi. And he didn't become a man of character in a moment in a cave. He became a man of character over time in preparation for the cave. And he was able to say, God put you in my hands and said, what will you do? What will you do? And David was able to say, I'll let him go. And I'm going to trust God. So what can we learn from this story in David's life? Well, I'm going to use the three questions that um, framework that Hunter used last week. And, and we're going to ask the questions, what does it say about God? What does it say about mankind? And how can I apply this to my life? But I want to start with the middle question. What does this say about mankind? Our natural tendency is to put ourselves first. We live in a me First society because we are me first creatures. That's what sin has done to us. And our bent, our nature is to always put ourselves first. What we want, what we need, what we desire is always first and foremost. That is the nature that we have. Humility does not come naturally or easily, it is a work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, working within us, conforming us to the image of Christ. Which brings me to the, next, the first question, which is, what does this tell me about God? It tells me that God can be trusted to bring about His plans and His purposes in His timing. Earlier, I had read a couple of verses from Philippians 2, encouraging us to be humble. That passage goes on to say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus is truly God's anointed one. This son of David was truly the anointed one that God had sent. Yet he not only set aside all of his privileges and rights, he died on behalf of the ones who were persecuting him and killing him. Why would he do that? Because that's what it took to fulfill God's plan and purpose. That's how committed God is to fulfilling his plan and his purpose. So if you need proof that you can trust God, then I point you to Jesus on the cross. If he's willing to go there for you to accomplish his plan and his purpose for you, you can trust him with any of the circumstances, any of the details, any of the enemies in your life. You can trust God. So how do we apply this to our lives? I need to learn to completely surrender control of my life to God and trust him. And this may be a daily and even a moment-by-moment -moment thing. So I want you to think on these three questions. Our worship team is going to sing a song uh, that our fellowship worship leaders wrote for this series. And it literally comes from this passage. As they read this passage of Scripture, they noticed how David was able to take the things that were in his hands, even including Saul, and entrust them into the hands of God. And so as you listen to this song, I want you to just ask God, show me what's in my hands that I need to put in yours. Teach me to trust you.
for making us new in him, new creations, where we get to walk with him, and he teaches us humility. If you're new here, thank you for joining us. If you have any questions, we have a connect booth right out these doors, and we'd be happy to get you plugged in or answer any questions for you. Um, if you'd like prayer, Dick and Connie Nervig are over here. They would love to pray for you. This Wednesday, um, I'm going to invite all men 6.15, I know it's early, Wednesday morning, but it's well worth it. Paul Sewell will be continuing his time teaching us, equipping us how to share our faith in, the, in everyday life. So it'll be a great one. Please join us, whether you've been there or not, please come. Finally, I just want to um, leave you with this as you head out. It's from uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.16, Paul writes this. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way, the Lord be with you all. Have a great day in the Lord.